following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. It is good to see all of you. If uh, you don't know me, my name is John Plesnick. I am one of the pastors here at Faith Bible Church. And uh, Chris Mueller, who would love to be here, is in Fontana right now, sweating north of us. Uh, He has gone to teach at Summit Bible Church, where if uh, you remember our old high school pastor, Morgan Maitland, uh, he was sent uh, not that long ago to become the teaching pastor of, and this was the opportunity where their schedules aligned and Chris could go up and preach. And so he wishes he could be here, but uh, is excited to be part of Morgan's church today. So with him gone, uh, it's sadly fallen to me to tell you what is going on in the church and to ask for your help. In short, there is sin, big sin, unrepentant sexual sin, slander, divisiveness, and aggressive pride that's ugly. Uh, Despite the ministry of the Word, we have seen no repentance or change though they regularly claim God's grace is forgiving their actions. It's sad whenever there's sin in the church. And I'd like to say that it was just one person, but we don't think that's true. And so I'm coming to you today to ask for your help. Uh, more than we ever realized, we are in a spiritual batter, battle, and as elders, we need your help to fight for the holiness of the church. So would you pray with me? Father God, we commit this morning to you and ask that you would do great and mighty things in our heart through the power of your word and your spirit. Lord, that you would sanctify us and set us apart uh, for you. Lord, that you would have us be a holy church that is focused and fixated and imbued with your truth Uh, Lord, in a way that transforms our church family. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you've been coming to FBC for a while, you know we've been working our way through the postcard epistles. Uh, Nigel and Patrick taught on 2nd and 3rd John. They have uh, talked about what it means to walk in love and truth as you live out God's purposes. Uh, Sean walked us through Philemon about what it means to have grace change everything in life. And as we wrap up the pastoral, or sorry, the postcard epistles, uh, the tone of the message changes. We're going to look at Jude today, and the call of Jude is to stand and fight. As a church, particularly, to fight for the holiness of the church. That is the message, and lest you be misled, as my own wife was during first service, I'm not calling out an individual person today. Uh, We're not practicing church discipline today. Uh, I'm not going to name someone. Some of you may be relieved by that. Uh, But what I said is very real. The, The fact that there is sin in the church, slander, divisiveness, pride, absolutely true. And what Jude's message for us is, is that we as a church have to fight for the holiness of the church. If you have your Bible, open up to Jude. If you've never seen the book of Jude, it's not surprising. It's a page long, and it is one page before the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. So that's an easy way to find it. Most New Testament books have the audience is the name of the book. You read Ephesians, it's written to the church in Ephesus. You read Philemon, it's written to uh, a man named Philemon. Jude is by Jude, by a man named Jude, by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, He is also a brother to James. They believed in Jesus after Jesus had died and risen. They became leaders in the church. And Jude is writing to Jewish believers spread through the Roman Empire, challenging them to fight for the holiness of the church. The promise of Jesus when Jesus was on earth was that there would eventually be tares among the wheat. What uh, Paul says in Acts 20 is that there would be wolves who come into the church. It's in your notes, Acts 20, 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Those outside, those inside the church would work to destroy it. Nigel taught us from 2 John that there would be men who would come into the church and the church was to reject them. All of the warnings the Bible gives are realized in Jude. All the warnings about people coming in, the godless coming into the church, are realized, they're actual in the book of Jude. He's saying the goats are here. The the unbelievers are here. There's people inside the church who profess to believe in Jesus, but deny him with their lives. This is true in Jude's day. It is true in our day. Guaranteed, sitting around you this morning, is someone, a few people, unnoticed by us all, following their own lusts while professing to believe in and follow Jesus Christ. That's the context Jude is writing to. That's the context for us today at our church. So if you're in the book of Jude, look at verse 1, and let's read just the very beginning together to get a sense of what he's talking about. Jude verse 1, he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. (coughs) Now it can feel, right now in our day, like our nation is locked in a bit of a death spiral where just things get worse year after year. In Jude's day, he lived in a time that was honestly worse than ours, more intense persecution, more national decline, the fall of an empire impending, And Jude's concern for the church is not what's going on out there, but what's going on in here. He's concerned about the presence of ungodly people in the midst of the church, where the tares are mixed with the wheat, the wolves are mixed with the sheep, the godly and the the godless are blended together. Uh, It is like the game Among Us. I don't know if y'all know that game. My girls began to play it during the COVID lockdown as a means of playing with friends, uh, and it's phone game. Uh, It's kind of like mafia. You have somebody who is hidden in the midst of you who's bad, who's taking out all the good people. That's what Jude is describing. Those games are reflecting biblical realities. You have to judge evidence to figure out who it is because everybody looks the same. The letter of Jude is written to a church where ungodly people have snuck in amongst the actual believers. And Jude tells people what to do. What do you do? He's not giving instructions to elders. He's giving instruction to all of us. What do you do? He calls us broadly to fight for the holiness of the church. That's the meaning of contend earnestly in verse 3. When he says that, contend earnestly means to strive, to fight for. It became used for athletics, for military efforts. It's intense work, fighting against sin in the church. That's his message. It's our responsibility. If you've been here any length of time, you know that as a church we do practice church discipline. For somebody who is enduring defiantly in sin, where they know what the Word of God says and they refuse to do it, we will actively pursue them. We'll call them to repent as a church. We will, if they continue over time to refuse to obey God, we'll remove them from the church. But how that all works is another message, another time. You read read in our doctrinal statement, find it on our sermon archive. Church discipline is not what Jude is talking about. Jude is talking about our own individual responsibility for the holiness of the church. Our own individual responsibility to fight sin in the church. It is a charge to you, a charge to me, saying, what can I do, what can you do to deal with ungodly people in the church. 
And you're going to see as we read through the book of Jude, he tends to talk in threes. He's every preacher's dream. Uh, everything he says is in triplicate. It's three different variations. And what you're going to see is he gives us three personal responsibilities in our corporate fight for holiness in the church. Three responsibilities we have to fight for holiness in the church. In order for it all to make sense, the thing you actually will, will make the most sense is that little outline that I put in your notes that describes the structure of Jude. Okay, so you see it, Jude 1, 2, greetings, we just read that. Jude 3, 4, he introduces the issue, we just read that. Then you've got this big parenthesis where he describes the ungodly. Verses 17 to 23, he then calls believers to action, 24 and 25, a closing benediction. So the big idea of Jude is the most visible to all of us if... We start at verse 3 and read 4, and then skip all the way down to verse 17 and read that, okay? So we're going to do that together so you get a sense for what he's saying. Pick back up with me, Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you fight, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who return the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, go to 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last days there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh." That's the big idea. That's the main message of Jude to the church. Three responsibilities we have that he describes to fight sin in the church. Our own responsibilities. The very first one we see is to fix your mind on the truth. To remember the truth. To fix your mind on it. The best way to fight sin in the church, Jude says, is to know the truth and to think on it. It's how Psalm 1 starts, verse 2 right? How blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is the habit of all worshipers. We see it in Jude in verse 17. He says, you, beloved, ought to remember the words spoken beforehand by the apostles. In other words, we need to reflect on truth. We need to remember what's already been written, what's already been said, what the, the, the true things that have already been taught to us. What are they? Well, verse 3 in Jude, he, he actually says that it's actually the whole faith. He says, what are we to contend for? What are we to fight for? The faith, once for all delivered to the saints, right? The faith, specific faith, the body of doctrine, all that we believe about who God is and what he has done in the world, who we are and how much we need him, what eternity is, right? We believe that God created everything, that he made all of mankind for his pleasure, to worship him, and we all rebelled. We, we believe that there was a physical, literal, Adam, historical, literal Adam and Eve who lived, were created, who sinned and died in their sins, and who we all follow after, that we have all earned physical death, and that we all await a future judgment. And yet, because of God's great love for his creation, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we never could to die on the cross to pay the debt we could never pay and suffer the judgment that we all deserve. He did that after calling Israel to live for him, to serve him, and then rejecting him, refusing him. We did, he did that after sending prophets to declare what he was going to do and to call Israel to repent. And now we, we stand on the other side of that. We see the truth of what God has done, and we see the reality that we're a part of a far greater thing called the church, which is the church militant, like all believers all around the world through all of time who are living for him, the local church, which is a gathered assembly of believers who worship Jesus Christ, who are called to live in the world but not be of the world, who are called to take the truth of the gospel and the truth that Jesus is coming back to judge and to reign 
to take that to the whole world. All right, there's, there's all these truths that are the gospel and its implications that are wrapped up in what Jude is describing, and it's what we're to fix our minds on. Not a single truth, not just the truth about what God has done in our lives, but the, 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 the broad truths that are contained in this book. That, that's what we're to fix our minds on. The things that are written beforehand. The temptation of our age is the new, right? We always have the new. We get notified of what's new all the time on our phones. The internet provides a steady diet of what's new. I can find out what's going on in the Olympics. I can find out the latest conflicting guidance on masks. I can find new products for any part of life I need, right? Like there's always something new to read, to see, to look at, to learn. There's always something new to be gleaned and the old is quickly forgotten and new articles are surfaced. New books come out and the old books kind of sit on shelves. News is continually published. A few of you might even still get a newspaper. For the younger, that is like Google News, but on print, in paper, print delivered, and it's yesterday's news left for you. Uh, it's weird. Uh, Jude tells us the best way to safeguard the holiness of the church is to know the truth and to fix your mind on the truth, to remember it to remember that it's complete, that it's sufficient, that it's everything we need for life and godliness, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. That it is written for our, our encouragement and instruction, according to Romans 15, verse 4. That it's, it's totally breathed out by God. It's inspired and good to teach us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3, 16. There's nothing more that's going to be added to it. We have everything we need to be saved and to live a life pleasing to God. And it's that truth that the godless are distorting. It's that truth that some in the church, in Jude's day and in ours, are distorting. You, you see this in verses 4 and following, and it's filled with him really using truth to expose and shine light, shine light onto the lifestyle of the godless. Let, let's read the long section that describes the godless people in the church. Look at verse 4, we'll start there. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, He subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who didn't keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, the Lord is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, they went after strange flesh, they are all exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued against the body of Moses, he didn't dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, they revile things they, they don't understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they're destroyed. Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain, for pay they've rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, their communion uh, celebrations, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they've done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude uses a whole lot of Old Testament descriptions and metaphors and references really to shine light using biblical truth to shine light on the lifestyles of the ungodly who are living in the church. 
Over and over, what he's saying is, is people can claim to follow God, but be genuinely unsaved. In the descriptions and allusions that he uses, they're all pointing to one major problem that they were doing, which is sexual sin. You know, licentiousness is the start of the point of many pointers to that. And they were following their own lust, seeking to please their flesh, mainly in sexual sin, using the grace of God to excuse their actions and to silence their conscience. They spoke arrogantly, they professed a deep faith, but they were, what he says, clouds without water, trees without fruit, right? Going through life by instinct rather than being led by the Spirit. And if you have any bent or temptation towards sexual sin in your life, Jude's words should genuinely terrorize your soul. He says you can be misled, you can say that you're in Christ, and be nowhere close to him. We're called to flee to Christ, to flee sin and run to Christ, to confess sin, to turn from it. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 describes what happens if you don't. He says, if we, this is in your notes, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So what Jude is saying is going to happen to the godless here who don't repent and to those who are in Christ, Jude shares the vaccine. What's, what's the antidote to temptation like this, to this lifestyle? It's to fix your mind on truth, to remember what's true, to remember who God is, to remember who you are, to remember really what you deserve and how you're only saved through Jesus Christ who you must hope in, to remember the brevity of this life and what's to come, to remember, to saturate your mind with truth, to fix your mind on all that's promised, not just promises about you. The temptation for Christians as we think on truth is to think about what the Word says about us particularly. But what Jude shows is that we actually need to call to mind all that the Word of God says, not just about us, but about the church, about what's to come, about what's happening, and what is to come, the future. You see this in verse 17. What does he say there? Look at it. You, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Jude says, remember what was promised by the apostles. This is not a promise for you. This is a promise of really kind of bad stuff that's going to happen, but it's a sign that the end is coming, right? That we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't be upset. We shouldn't be led astray. We should, as we read the Word, as we fix our minds on truth, as we fight against sin and for the holiness of the church, we should remember these promises that tell us that the last days are approaching, that we are getting closer to Jesus coming back, right? It's the first step to fighting sin in the church is to fix your minds on the truth. The second challenge he gives us is to fight to grow in truth, to fight to grow in the truth. First, we fix our minds on all that's true. Second, we fight to grow in the truth. Right now, we are in a special season when we actually have the ability to watch the Olympics at home at night. And it's so fun. I'm more of a Winter Olympics person myself, but I love certain things at the Summer Olympics. Uh, and some things I'm learning are sports, and I never knew they were sports. So that's also good. Uh, it is amazing to see world-class athletes performing at the very peak of their game, whether it's gymnasts, swimmers, um, cyclists, runners, rowers, all of those things, incredible. And occasionally, and I remember this much more in past, gymnast, gym, uh, past Olympics than this one, you would see someone who looks abnormally strong for their uh, competition in sports and size. You know what I'm talking about? It seems like sometime in life they clearly uh, used a illegal competitive advantage. They juiced in some way, doped up in order to gain some mass and some bulk. And we know that this happens even in the Olympics because Russia is not in the Olympics for doping. Uh, though the Russian Olympic Committee, whatever, we won't go into that. Every high level athlete wants to be the best that they can be, right? Some 
use performance enhancers in order to get a competitive step up. Uh, there are a number in American sports, baseball, cycling, etc., that use that to get to the next level. Amazingly gifted athletes who want to grow at any cost, who will do anything in order to get that boost. How much do you want to grow as a Christian? I'm not advocating drugs, just to be clear. You need to make that differentiation right now. But how much do you want to grow? It's kind of sad because it seems rare to find a Christian who is as hungry to grow as a mid-level college athlete. Like some of y'all played college sports. You know what it took to stay on the team and even more what it took to actually be on the game and on the field. It, it took work off-season. It took work in the gym. It took a lot of practices. It took a lot of self-discipline. And yet, you approach the Christian life way more casual and laissez-faire than a college athlete. Jude's challenge to us is to grow, to be hungry to grow, to want it, to fight for it, to sacrifice to make it happen. How much do you want to grow? And as some of you make sacrifices for it. You drive straight from work to CG. Are you willing to make more? Maybe to get up early to meet with some men for accountability and Bible study. Maybe to choose to read a Christian book on your lunch break. That's not even a sacrifice. Now, a crazy one would be to take a class on diagramming the Bible to learn how to study better. <laughs> Nobody would do that. But there, there should be evidences in your life that you are wanting to grow, that you are pursuing growth in Christ at cost to yourself. How do you respond to people who are following their own lusts who are ungodly and yet professing Christ. What should you do? Jude tells us you should grow. Your response, the best thing you can do for them is to grow in Christ yourself. Do you get that? that that's the answer here. Jude 20 and 21, that's where we see it. You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the command. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The one command. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep watch of your own soul. Fight to grow. That, that's, that's the motive. That's the drive here. And then he uses these three active descriptions of what it looks like to actively keep yourself in the love of God. Three ways to fight to grow. Not to earn your salvation by your activities. Not to earn God's approval by your work. That's not at all what he's talking about. But how to grow and become more like Jesus Christ. Right? You see these three ways in the text. Verse 20. The first one he says, he says there is to be building yourselves up on your most holy faith to be building up your faith. Now, Nigel, when he was talking about our property, he said the grading's kind of done, the sewer lines and drainage is going in. Honestly, what comes after that is the, the pouring of the footings, the building, building of the foundation not long after. We're going to see it go up. It's going to be so cool. Not, not even the building, but when you actually walk out onto the land and you see a concrete pad where the building is going to go, that's the foundation. In the Christian life, that is poured by the apostles and the prophets, according to Ephesians 2.20, with Jesus Christ as the, as the cornerstone. That foundation is laid in the life of every Christian. What we're called to build is the superstructure. What goes on top of that, that's what's judged. The work here is of building up your faith, fighting to grow in Christ. No Christian is saved and then flatlines in life, staying the same for the rest of their life. No, that doesn't happen to any Christian. Every Christian, when they're saved, begins this progress of becoming more and more conformed to look like Jesus Christ, to be transformed by the power of the Spirit, to be more and more holy and set apart for God. Now, some people have like this hockey stick of growth. Some people have this moderate growth. Some people look more like the stock market or the housing market. Like, 
it's all up and down, it's all different, but nobody does this. Nobody stays flat. Everybody has some progression. If you have no progression, you have no assurance of salvation. The Christian life is growth. You grow in the gospel, in your understanding of it. You grow in your understanding of theology. You grow in the understanding of the Bible. You grow in your Christian life. You look different over time than you used to. And as that growth happens, your affection for God increases. There's a trajectory in your life. Your love for God, your own character, they grow as you study God's Word. And as you study God's Word, you're led to pray. That's the second thing he says there, that we pray in the Holy Spirit. How do you fight to grow? You build up your faith. You pray in the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about speaking in tongues, but it's just mirroring what's said in Ephesians 6.18, that with all prayer and petition, it's in your notes, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, to be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. When you are taking in God's Word, fixing your mind in truth, considering your own walk, when you're, when you're processing what the Word of God says about your life, the natural response is to pray, to talk to God about it. Not Prayer is not what you heard at Catholic Church. It's not the, maybe the repetitive thing you heard around the dinner table. Prayer is talking with God telling him what you're thinking, how you're feeling, confessing your struggles and your anxieties, pleading for change of heart, pleading with him to change your mind, to change your actions, your life. Prayer is praise. It is worship. It's, it's just this part of life. Colossians 4.2 says that we're to devote ourselves to it. If you want to keep yourself in the love of God, if you want to fight to grow in Christ, you have to talk to the one who loves you most. You have to talk to the one who wrote this. You have to talk to the one who keeps you in his love. You build yourself up, you pray in the spirit, and then third, he says that you wait anxiously for Jesus' return. And I love this. You see that right in Jude 21. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The longing of our hearts should be for heaven. The longing of our hearts should be for heaven. Whenever I get the chance, I will try to study, read, teach on heaven. Uh, it was probably 10 years or so ago that I first kind of made that realization and decision. And so I started back then, I started reading Revelation 21, 22, studying that. And then I worked backwards, so I like better read the whole book, read all of Revelation. And then you start working through the epistles and the gospels. I want to know more and more about what God says about the future, about where we're going to be with him. Then you go to the Old Testament, it gets richer. You look at the prophets, so much in there. Whenever I get to read about heaven, whenever I get to stay about heaven, whenever I get to teach or preach on heaven, I'm excited. Do you know why? It's because I don't think about it naturally that much. My brain most naturally thinks about the days ahead. I tend to think about what's coming in the next two to five years. I don't tend to think about what eternity will be like. But when I do, it changes how I live. It changes how I think. It changes how I talk to people, how I shepherd. It causes my faith to grow. It causes my, anxi my anxieties to fade. It transforms everything, right? You see in your notes, Philippians 2, 11 to 13, just look at verse 13 at the end. This is the responsibility of us all. He says, we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Do you look for the return of Jesus Christ. It is a part of how we grow is longing for the return of Jesus Christ. In suffering, Christians begin to look for the return of Jesus because we want him to take away our pain. In flight of sin, Christians begin to long for heaven because we want to go where sin is no more. In later years, some Christians begin to read a lot more about heaven because they want to know their next travel destination, right? But how do you forgive when wrong is done to you? 
Well, you can try to gut it out. You can try to forget about it. Or you can really think on heaven and eternity and what's coming and the, and the greatness of eternity and life with God. How, how do you fight lust? You can simply run. You can try to gut it out. You can look to the return of Jesus and the eternity that's coming and think about this light momentary affliction. Right? All mature people in Christ have this hunger for heaven. I put in your notes, Sina, Anna, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, all of them were looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. You read Hebrews 11, that whole uh, just amazing uh, historical account of all the people who had great faith. Many of them, it says in the text, were looking forward to the reward, looking forward to heaven. Do you desire for Jesus to return? It's tough. The more you love God, the more you will look forward to heaven. Do you want to be with him more than you want to experience life here? A sure sign that you are growing in your faith is an increasing desire to be with him. All right, we need to fix our minds on what's true. We need to fight to grow in truth. Neither of those things are natural, but both of them are safeguards for the church and its holiness. They're the primary means in which God has given us to fight sin in the church and to fight godlessness in the church. When, when Jude challenges us to say there's sin in the church, what are you going to do about the ungodly? His instructions are, deal with your life. Look to your walk. Focus on what's true. Not, not so much to deal with others. Fighting sin in the church is not so much about attacking others and revealing their errors. It's mainly and foremost about your own walk with God. It's only the third thing that Jude focuses on others. The last challenge is the only one he gives that's focused on others where he says to love with the truth. Love others with the truth. When there are people in the church who are godless with minds set on the world, following after their own lusts, there will be collateral damage, right? In every war, there is collateral damage. There's not just the people who are injured on the battlefield, but there's the people who lived on the battlefield who either hunkered down in their basements or fled as refugees, whose lives are forever changed because of the war that happened there. They're forever altered. And Jude here instructs us to minister to the damaged. To, to go after and love those who have been damaged by the trauma in the church. Look at verse 22 in Jude. He says, in light of all this, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Just like Jude, there's three categories of people here. The NKGV compresses it to two, but there's three. There's those who, are, those who doubt, those who have been influenced by the ungodly, who are beginning to question what's going on. There's those who are following them, who need to be saved. They've started to embrace error. And then third, there's those who have fallen, who've messed up big time, who were to go after as well. When sin gains a foothold in the church, those are the three responses. I was talking to a pastor this last week who is not in our valley, but he has actually been trying to help believers at a church close to him because the teaching pastor at that church completely disqualified himself. And the church family doesn't know, but the leadership in the church pretty much does. And there's three responses within the leadership. Some of them have been led astray by the teaching pastor to commit the same sins. And that's bad. Others are complicit. They know about it, and while they're not personally guilty, they just kind of brush it off and overlook it and defend him and shrug at it. And then there's a few who are kind of questioning what's going on, saying, I don't think this is right, but I don't really know what to do. And those responses are pretty close to what Jude describes here within the church. This is the fallout from ungodliness in the church. Jude says that there's some who are going to begin to doubt, right? They're going to begin to second guess what they believe and think, well, if all sin is forgiven, why do I need to flee it? 
if my sins are covered, then maybe I don't need to feel guilty about last night. Right? Maybe these people are just legalistic. And maybe that's you who's having those thoughts. Jude acknowledges that there's people in the church who doubt. That, that's understandable. And his encouragement is, is that we would love those who are doubting with the truth. That we would come alongside them with the truth because God can handle their questions. The Bible answers their questions. As Christians, we should stand ready to help them, to love them, to come alongside them. Jude says that we're to have mercy on this group. And the, the next group he deals with is, is worse off. It's basically, he says, as the ungodly grow, divisions happen, followers develop, and gain a following. The, these followers are the next group Jude tells us to love. He says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. These are people who've begun to embrace the theology of the godless. Their lives are starting to reflect it. He says, you shouldn't give up on them. You shouldn't give up. You shouldn't lose hope, but you need to continue to love them with the truth, to share the gospel with them. Because he says they will be saved, right? They're going to be rescued from the coming fire of judgment. They need salvation. We need to love them with the truth. Then the last group is the most ensnared, the most damaged, the most influenced. It may even include some of the apostates who Jude described earlier. To those deeply ensnared in sin, Jude says that we are to have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. There are people whose lives are so affected by sin that their whole life just reeks of it. It's inescapable. Everyone around it knows what's going on. That you remember, maybe some of you as parents, the era when you decided to move to potty training. Do you remember this era? And that you got excited because you said, "All right, we're going to take the diapers off. We're going to put the big boy pants on, right?" And then for weeks, months, years afterwards, <laughs> you would occasionally walk by and. There was uh, something not right in that boy's pants or girl's pants. And you had a, a massive mess to clean up with while they played gleefully, ignorant of the stench that was coming around them that everyone could get. You know what I'm talking about? That's the literal word picture he uses here for people in sin. When he says the garment polluted uh, by the flesh, that is a poop-stained undergarment, literally. Jude wants you to understand how filthy, how nasty, how corrupting their sin is. If you get too close to it, you're going to get it on you. If you spend too much time with it, you're going to smell like them. Sin stinks. And you got to be careful. Yet, while fearing sin, you got to love them with truth and mercy. Galatians 6.1, in your notes, it's the same truth. Brethren, if even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We can lack hope for people assuming that they're never going to change, that they're not ever going to be different. I, I'm particularly bent to, towards that, to assume that as they are, they will always be. But the reality is, I was a hater of God. You were a rebel against him. At some point in your life, you were just as hopeless as these people. And God, in his amazing mercy, unblinded your eyes and used some faithful believer in combination with his word and the work of his spirit to save you. I don't know why. But in his great mercy and love, he does. We can lack hope for people, assuming they're never going to change. And Jude says to love them with truth. Be super cautious about their sin, right? But be humble, not hard. Genuine truth always leads to humility, not hardness. Some people think of truth as something that, where you beat them with it. That is not what God calls us to do. God calls us to love people with humility and mercy. 
if you understand who you are before God, if you know some measure of your own sin before God, if you really understand your self-righteousness and have abandoned it, you can't lose hope for other people. You, you can't give up with hope for others. You can't say they're beyond the bounds of God's mercy because you know there's nothing lovely within you that gained God's mercy. You know that your life would be a train wreck without God's grace. You were saved when you were a hater and a rebel. And so that, that's what it means to love with truth. Not that you use the word of God to hurt and abuse people, but that the truth of the gospel, as you love with truth, pushes you to be gentle, humble, gracious, merciful in your dealings with others while being uncompromising about what's true and utterly devoted to God's holiness and unflinching in your own personal holiness. Both of them together, right? Unwavering in truth, unfazed by the nasty. It's what 2 Timothy 2.24 describes in your notes. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape them, escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now that's written to shepherds, but it is the target for all believers, that we love other people with truth. And honestly, none of this is easy. To, to fill your mind with truth takes work. To fight to grow is a uh, marathon race, an Olympic level. To, to love others is not our own bent and inclination, especially if we're going to love them with the truth and grace of God's Word rather than our own hardness. None of it's easy, which is why he started verse 3 saying, fight, contend earnestly, strive, work hard at this. You know, you know godless people who profess Jesus Christ. You may be sitting near someone who uses the grace of God as a license to sin, who lives for their lust under the cover of grace. I am confident there were a few in the room who were concerned I was going to name them at the start of the church service. Our job, your job, your greatest help to them is to fill your mind with God's Word, to pursue growth in your own life, and then from those things to love them with the truth of God's Word and with the transformation and grace that you've experienced. That's what we're called to do to fight ungodliness in the church, to read, to dig in, to share, and God will keep you holy. And God will preserve you from stumbling. And God will sanctify and transform our church. And God will glorify himself. I know that because that's how Jude ends. That, that's how he concludes the book of Jude in verse 24. Look at it. After saying all of this, this is how he ends. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do commit ourselves to you in this task. Lord, we recognize that Our church is growing and has a bunch of believers who, want, who love you and want to grow. And yet, Lord, there are also those among us who, though professing Christ, are empty of your spirit, completely lacking. Whether self-deceived or self-aware, we don't know. And Lord, we want to see them not out, but saved. We want to see them transformed to lovers of you. People as devoted to your glory as 
your children are. And Lord, we can wring our hands in despair, be filled with anxiety and concern. And we know that change and growth comes from you, that you are the one who has to save. But Lord, we also see this blueprint in Jude and we want to be faithful. We see this challenge to us to internalize your word in our thinking, in our mouths, with our speech, in all of our life to take what's true and to live it out. We see this challenge in your word to aggressively pursue growth in Christ. Lord, through the opportunities that are available in church, through relationships with other people, through the study of your word, in prayer, in anticipation of heaven, in all those ways, Lord, we are called to grow. And then, Lord, you give us the responsibility, the opportunity, and the, Lord, the, the, the fearfulness of loving others who are on often a really different page than us who look at life really different, who have different priorities, different values. Not even those outside the church, but some who are inside but not a part of us. Oh, we pray that you would give us wisdom in that to uncompromisingly balance truth and grace. Lord, to unflinchingly preserve and hold fast to what your word says about what's true and what you demand of our lives. And yet, Lord, to humbly and gently love those with the truth. And Lord, to, to never give an inch towards compromising what your word says. And yet, for those who are opposed to it, to utterly experience our love in the midst of it. Or we hold all these tensions with wonder, with desire and anticipation of what you're going to do. Lord, we pray that you would set us apart to make us a people devoted to you, to your glory. Your word promises that you will keep us from stumbling, that you will allow us to live in a way that's pleasing and glorifying to you so that we would one day stand in your presence blameless with great joy. We commit our lives to you for this purpose now. In your son's precious name, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.